0: Hey guys, this is Chuma, and you are listening to The Silent Doc. I hope the music is cueing you into the vibe, the mood, and the topic. Everything is intentional here. So please, if you haven't already, subscribe, review, and share with your friends if you feel like what you're listening to is moving you. Every like and share goes a super long way. So believe it or not, but this is our 10th episode. And if you haven't listened to the Other episodes that are a little more COVID centered, I highly encourage you do. I really enjoyed putting together the front lines and when did coronavirus become real? Just some of my personal favorites. Because this is the 10th episode and that feels like a milestone to me, I feel like some quick updates are in order. A day ago, we reached 700 downloads. Like what? (laughs) That is honestly incredible. We have people listening in Australia, the UK, canada and of course all throughout the united states from california to my hometown baltimore maryland thank you thank you thank you your support means the world to me please hit me up on instagram if you have feedback i would love to hear from you looking down the pipeline we have an interview from an economist that's coming in the works we had a really amazing conversation just about covid the economy and trying to put everything in perspective So I'm actually really excited to share that with you guys. I want to give a fellow podcaster a shout out. His name is Chris Payek. His show is called Living Unconventionally. It's perfect for all those who dream of starting a new life in a foreign country. Inspiring, fun, and helpful. Wouldn't that be nice? Just picking up and moving somewhere else? But then again, where would you go? I don't know. But let him help you get there. Check out his podcast, living unconventionally. Okay, now that my celebratory 10-episode spiel is over, let's get to it. George Floyd, caught in the crosshairs. I know it's not the right time. We are all caught up in a moment. No, a movement, an awakening of our social consciousness. Bank of America has pledged $1 billion to organizations working to end systemic racism. Michael Jordan pledged $100 million over 10 years to organizations who will fight to end racial injustice. Color of Change quadruples its email subscribers essentially overnight. Instagram grows dark, essentially halting all business to demonstrate solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. How could now be the right time? How do I remind them of the virus, which has done immeasurable damage to our community? According to the John Hopkins Research Center, racial and ethnic data is only available for 30% of the deaths that have occurred in the United States. And even with this limited sample, it shows that Black Americans and other historically disadvantaged groups are experiencing infection and death rates that are disproportionately high for their share of the total population. When it comes to the Latin American community, the numbers are even more opaque, as individuals from Latin communities are often not even placed into the correct ethnic designation, often being counted as white, making it more and more difficult to determine the scope of disease in their community. But now is not the time. So I wait. And all the while, the virus spreads. And while it doesn't put its knee on your neck, it takes your breath away all the same. So it's another night in the COVID ICU. The intensive care unit always seems to fill you with that eerie emptiness. Because of this, they have been cycling us in two weeks at a time to keep from breaking our spirit. To keep morale high. The building where I work is heavy under the weight of itself. Liquid leaking out of the crawl spaces, muted shades of emerald green and faded grays bleeding into one another. The hallway entrance is full of hallmark cards lining the walls of the tight plastic entrance. Messages from patients' family members whispering praise for our service and the war we wage against COVID-19 as we have barred their entry into the hospital. Why should I be congratulated when I'm allowing so many more outside these four walls to put themselves in harm's way, to become victim to this silent virus? The Revised Medical Examiner's report informs us that George Floyd, despite dying from asphyxiation, was COVID-19 positive. And no, I'm not suggesting health comorbidities, unspecified intoxicants, or COVID-19 led to the death of George Floyd. He was murdered in cold blood. But the presence of COVID-19 in his system makes you wonder. How did he get it? How long had it been there? Who had he already spread it to? If Derek Chauvin hadn't killed him, was it only a matter of time? We will never know. But it is a visceral reminder of just how widespread this virus is. And even more so, its prevalence in the African-American community. I entered the emotional abyss that is the ICU. Nurses confined to their rooms, for the entirety of their shift, sending ephemeral messages through translucent walls. Human beings strapped to their beds so long that they become inseparable from one another. Long hallways dark and devoid of any mention of hope. I see my fellow residents. Their eyes flicker with joy as they see my face. It's now my turn to shoulder the weight of this emptiness. We discuss the day. The patients. These patients who will not kneel, stand, or march during this movement, they will only lie there, in bed. The lucky ones in a room with a window that faces the sun, allowing their cold, still bodies the opportunity to feel the natural warmth of its heat. The not-so-lucky ones face down, with the weight of their own bodies smoothening out the natural texture of their once lively faces. Their complex stories become whittled down to single-digit numbers, added to the ever-growing stack of names, a heap of black and brown bodies. These are the ones I speak for. Room 1. A 56-year-old African-American female with a history of high blood pressure, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease, and respiratory failure due to COVID-19. During the day, she arrested. Heart stopped. Breathing ceased. Code blue. She almost transitioned into that dark statistical pile we quote every day, over 116,000 dead due to coronavirus in the United States. But they managed to bring her back. Room two, a 75-year-old African-American male with a history of multiple strokes in the past, diabetes, and coronary artery disease, who presented with low oxygen levels and whom developed respiratory failure within hours of coming into the hospital. Despite initial testing being negative, repeat swabbing, due to high concern for COVID-19, returned positive. I can't remember if I was wearing PPE the last time I was in his room. Room 3, a 55-year-old male with uncontrolled HIV, chronic lung disease, and heart failure, found to have COVID-19. Despite aggressive therapy, his clinical status is worsening. The ventilator is pushing 100% oxygen into his lungs, but it is not enough. The antibiotics started on his arrival to the intensive care unit aren't working. The trial drugs are offered, but he falls leaps and bounds outside of any population any of these experimental drugs were tested in. I know he looks like me, but not from his face, but rather from the small slivers of dark skin I can see between the padding on the rotabed. bed. His black body suspended in air and encased in a machine Houdini would not dare attempt to escape from. I have not seen his face in days, as we are using this last ditch attempt to oxygenate his lungs. All these patients are not only COVID-19 positive, but they are all African-American. The posthumous diagnosis of George Floyd having coronavirus is a visceral reminder of what it means to be black in America right now, to be caught in the crosshairs of a global pandemic that targets us disproportionately and a centuries-long epidemic of police brutality that has gone on since the advent of slave patrols, 400 years ago. In New York City, coronavirus was found to be killing Black and Latino patients at twice the rate of white individuals. In Louisiana, one report found 70% of those who had died from coronavirus were Black. In my own hospital, I don't have the data at my fingertips, but I see it with my eyes. I see men and women who look like me disproportionately infected and dying from this disease. Before the Black Lives Matter protests erupted, we were deeply committed to social distancing. We were vociferously fighting the Brian Kemp's of the world, suggesting nail salons, massage parlors, and tattoo studios were central businesses. We were all committed to flattening the curve at any cost. But George Floyd changed that. His death sparked legitimate outrage and anger in cities within every state of America. His death sparked riots that saw police cars aflame, corner stores looted, and whole police precincts burned to ash. I wish I could tell them to stay home and stay safe. But how can I? How do I tell them not to march when we need to more than ever? How can I tell them to stop when their actions have led to change? How do I tell them that amplifying their voices also means exposing themselves to a virus that will statistically affect them more than their white counterparts? How can we not protest when the status quo places us all at risk of becoming another George Floyd? How do you decide which is worse? Struggling to breathe under the heavy weight of an officer's knee or being attached to a ventilator and fighting for your life as the virus ravages your body? Thinking back to the video that showed the gruesome murder of George Floyd to the world, his face is often replaced by the faces I see in the hospital. Black and brown faces on which coronavirus has a breathless stranglehold over. My great fear is that in my silence, that stranglehold grows tighter and tighter, and grips more and more necks that all go breathless. A virus is killing my people. Will someone tell them?